This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Welcome to a Turn on the Jets digital special presentation. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. We're going to get into part two of my discussion with Jim Coburn, the data and analytics expert who went through all of the top prospects in the 2019 NFL Draft. We did the pass rushers and Quinn and Williams yesterday. We're going to get into all the other positions today. But before we do, there's some news to talk about. So, of course, we bring in our man who we call our Jets Insider because... That's the name of the site he runs, JetsInsider.com. He is the owner, the operator, the lead reporter, the whole shebang for that site. And, of course, above all of that, a very big deal, Mr. Chris Nimbley. Chris, what's going on, man? Big deal in it. That's about it. You're big deal in it. It sounds like Frank Clark is going to be big deal in it when he gets himself a new contract. The latest buzz there, we talked about this the last time you and I spoke, Chris. Talked about this with Daryl Slater from NJ.com last week as well. Essentially, the story going around is that the Jets were interested. They wanted to go after Clark if he was a free agent. He wasn't. He got tagged. The Jets called to see if they could pry him loose. The Seahawks wanted more than what the Jets had. So we fast forward, and now it looks like Frank Clark is on the block. And the reports were that the three teams that were really in were the Colts, the Chiefs, and the Jets. And I have some intel on the Colts' end of things in a bit. We'll get to that after we talk about the Jets' end of this. So Connor Hughes of The Athletic comes out and says that the Jets really want Clark, but Seattle is holding firm. They want the number three overall pick, which, of course, is insane. And if Mike McCagney did that trade, he probably should have been walked out the door right away. Then, later on, we get a report from Manish Mehta of the Daily News basically raining all over Connor Hughes' parade and claiming that the Jets were never really serious about Clark. They just called to check in. Anybody who thought that the Jets really made a firm offer or were really that interested in Clark had their facts wrong, which, Chris, as you joked, was a clear swipe from Manish at Connor Hughes, which I don't really think is necessary, but Connor's a big boy. He can defend himself. I think that what this reeks of to me, though, is the Jets were interested. We talked about how Samini and Tony Pauline were talking about this on their podcast last week, that the Jets called to try and pry Clark loose, that they wanted him in free agency. It seemed like we were heading in that direction where the Jets were going to make an offer. They probably did. At the very least, they asked what it would take. Maybe they didn't get to the stage where they made any kind of firm offer. The Seahawks might have told them what they were looking for. The Jets realized they didn't have it. Asked if they might be willing to take something else. The Seahawks said no, and on and on down the line. But that's what it reads like to me, that the Jets really did make an effort to get Frank Clark. And one of two things is going on here, or both. A, they're negotiating publicly. In other words, saying, we're not really that interested so that the Seahawks might come back to the table with a lower price. And or B, if they don't get Clark, this is their way of saving face because they can say to the Jets fans, Eh, it was all overblown. We weren't really trying to trade for Frank Clark. It was just us doing our due diligence like we always do. That's what it feels like to me. Is that the impression you get, Chris? Yeah. Uh, listen, we're going to talk about this more, too, with, uh, with the next topic. But uh, a lot of this is it really comes down to semantics. Um, the, the difference in reports between Manish and, and Connor, because from what I've heard, it's closer to what Connor said. Uh, it's definitely they, they they definitely checked in, which we all know the Jets are going to do with any time anybody's player of Frank Clark's caliber uh, becomes available, whether it's a trade or free agency, they're going to check in. Uh, so Manish is absolutely right about that. But they checked in with Seattle. Seattle says, hey, how about you give us number three overall? The Jets say take a hike. And then they say, well, what else you got? The Jets don't have a second round pick. And then the Seahawks say, all right, what can you do for me? You can't do anything for me. And now I think right now with the way the Seahawks are looking at this, you know, we were talking about this before. The Jets could put together some type of package where it's a third this year and a second next year. But it doesn't really make sense for the Seahawks to make that move now. They can sit here and they can say, "Okay, we're going to hold out for a first round pick. And if we don't get that first round pick, then we go to the draft. Maybe we will try to draw, uh, draft, you know, Sweat or Brian Burns, and then we'll be willing to get rid of Frank Clark for a little bit less than the first round tag that we're holding on to. It doesn't make sense for them to go ahead and make that trade, to trade a player of Clark's caliber 
for just a third round pick this year. That doesn't help them that much next year. So if they hold off, if they try to hold stubbornly to that first, maybe they get somebody to bite. Maybe they get a team like the Chiefs or the Colts to bite. It makes way more sense for one of those teams to make a move like that for Frank Clark, first of all, because you're more than willing to do something like that when you're closer to a Super Bowl contender. The Jets aren't a Super Bowl contender away, you know. They're, they're not sitting there just like, all right, if we get Frank Clark, we're going to the Super Bowl next year. So they can't do that. Obviously, the Chiefs and the Colts have later round draft picks. Um, so it makes more sense for them to, to try to do a move like that. So the Seahawks are going to sit there and say, listen, we're going to hold into, hold on to this, and then if we don't get them after the draft, if we can get a pass rusher we like, then maybe we can flip them, and then we can go and talk to the Jets or somebody else. And so I think that's more along the lines. But to sit here and say that, you know, they, don't, they didn't really have any real interest, they were just doing due diligence, that seems a little um, off to me. They, like. Frank Frank Clark, he's he's really good. There's not a lot of pass rushers out there as good as Frank Clark. We know how bad the Jets need to pass rush. The Jets, uh, McCagnan himself has talked about it. This isn't a secret. So to sit there and say that, you know, the Jets weren't really ever interested in them just seems crazy to me. And it's just... I don't I don't see it. It just doesn't make sense. He's a really good player, but they simply don't have the ammo because they're not, you know, maybe if they were able to do like what the Colts pull off a trade like the Colts and they did last year where they made the trade early enough, then they could go ahead and say, okay, now we got a second round pick for you, Seattle. And then maybe that would work. But right now, they just don't have the ammo to, to for the best pick that they can offer to be in a pick of next year's draft. I just don't think Seattle's going to make that move now. There doesn't really seem to be much of a point for Seattle to do it now as to just, all right, we'll wait and address this later in the draft. And this is the thing. The Seahawks kind of shot themselves in the foot here by waiting so long to make Frank Clark available like this. They should have done it earlier in the offseason when teams still had more cap space, when the, before teams had a chance to really fall in love with the prospects on their draft board and set their board. Now teams aren't going to be as willing to trade for them as they would have been two months ago. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. I'm confused by the whole thing, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's confusing. It's a really strange situation, and it gets a little more confusing with the Colts end of this, which I'm going to get into in a second. But I will say, from the Jets' perspective, it really does feel, like you said, Chris, as if some guy went up to a really attractive woman, asked her out, she said no, and then he went back to his friends and said, eh, I don't want to go out with her anyway. I think that essentially what's going to happen here with the Jets is if they trade down and pick up extra picks, maybe then they get back into this. Or, like you said before, if Seattle doesn't trade him until after the draft, maybe the Jets get back in. But for now, I think they realize that they don't have what Seattle is looking for. And so they put that word out there just in case they end up not landing him or with the assumption that they may not land him so that they can save face with the fan base. And as far as the Colts go, because the three teams that were mentioned in terms of Frank Clark were the Jets, the Colts, and the Chiefs. I spoke to George Bremer, who's my guy when it comes to the Colts. He's the editor of CNHI Sports over in Indianapolis. He told me that under normal circumstances, he would say that there is almost no chance that the Colts would make a move like this because Chris Ballard, the Colts GM, does not believe in trading high draft picks and paying a player. It's either one or the other. However, the reason why this might be different is because Ed Dodds, who is the assistant general manager and Ballard's right-hand man in Indianapolis, was the scout who recommended to Seattle that they draft Frank Clark and was really pounding the table for him. It seems like he may be twisting Ballard's arm trying to convince him to make this move for Frank Clark. Under normal circumstances, it would not be a move that the Colts would make, but... 
The wild card here is whether or not Ballard trusts his right-hand man enough to maybe make a move that he normally wouldn't make because this is something that his right-hand man feels so strongly about. And that's why the Colts might be in this. Dollars to Donuts, they probably don't make this move, but that one connection with Dodds is the one thing that keeps this from being the Le'Veon Bell situation where, if you remember, I was very adamant. Georgia told me over and over again the Colts were not going to be bidding on Le'Veon Bell. He said it for months, and George is the best, so I knew he was right, and of course he was. The Colts never made a bid at all. I don't think they're going to end up getting in on Clark really seriously, but the Dodds thing is a wild card here. Looks like the Chiefs are probably going to have to be the ones that step up and make a big offer if Clark is going to be traded before the draft. So if the Jets wait this out, maybe they have a chance because if the Chiefs don't want to make some sort of big offer right now or they don't feel the pressure, Clark could still be available after the draft. So it'll definitely be a situation worth monitoring, as is obviously what's going on with the number three overall pick. Which, according to Connor Hughes, Seattle had asked for for Frank Clark. The Jets wisely said no to that because they want to use it to draft a player of their own who they think can be a stud for them for many, many years. Now, we had thought that the discussion would be between Nick Bosa, Josh Allen, and Quinn and Williams, depending on who is on the board at the time. However... Over the last couple days, there has been a ton of chatter. It began with Daniel Jeremiah from NFL Network, and then it started to spread. You heard it from Albert Breer. You heard it from Peter King. You heard it from Rich Semini. You heard it from Anish Med of the Daily News. All of these people are saying that Ed Oliver, the defensive tackle from Houston, could be the guy that the Jets really like and will pick at number three, which is a bit of a stunner. Now, I want to dissect this, Chris, because regardless of whether or not the Jets really like Oliver, I don't understand what's going on here. This is coming from so many different directions. Who is leaking this, and what exactly is the end game? What are they trying to accomplish here? Yeah, that's tough to figure out. I'm going to start with this, because uh, you know every single year, as the draft gets closer and closer, we get about two weeks away from the draft, and every reporter says, hey, we are now officially officially entering lying season. Don't believe anything you hear over the next couple of weeks. And then inevitably, every single year, the week of the draft comes around, reporters start throwing stuff out with sources, and everybody gobbles it all up and eats it all up, and like it's all gospel, and now everyone's flipping out. And I'm not just talking about uh, Ed Oliver and the Jets here. We're talking about Kyler Murray now. We're talking about how the Raiders just sent all their scouts home because they couldn't trust anybody. And then like two or three days later, people are talking about uh, reports and leaks coming from the Raiders. And it's uh, we ju- everybody just said it's lying season and not to believe it all. And now you come out with Ed Oliver, and it'd be one thing if it was just Daniel Jeremiah. And if it was just Jeremiah, a couple people here or there. But it seems like it's coming from everywhere right now, and that is too much smoke. That just feels like too much smoke. It's either that or just everybody decided to just piggyback off of Daniel Jeremiah's report and just run with that there. Um, Here's the thing. I think Ed Oliver is somebody that could and should be considered along that range for most teams. I still definitely am in agreement with you where I would think Quinnen Williams is above him, and I would think that the Jets would, if the Jets are stuck at three, that they would be more inclined to stick with Quinnen Williams if he's on board. I could absolutely, I, I, not there's not a doubt in my mind that Jets like Ed Oliver a lot. They probably you could probably even go up bump that up to love Ed Oliver. I don't know that I'm I'm not comfortable saying that the Jets are going to pick Ed Oliver at three if they stay there. And part of that is just because we're hearing it from way too many people. It just seems like smoke at this point. And there's a lot of criticisms you can have of Mike McCagnan. But he has done a really good job of not leaking information along these lines. It would be weird for that to come out now. It just seems way too much uh, for this to be the case. But I could see them, you know, if they were to trade back, then I could definitely see them trying to go after Ed Oliver. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they will select him if they stay there at three. I can see it. I'm not saying it'd be a terrible pick. And, you know, a lot of people are kind of confused because Ed Oliver wasn't a, you know, a 
buzzy name of the last couple of months. He wasn't talked about that high. But if you've been paying attention to college football for the last couple of years, the fact of uh, Ed Oliver being talked about as a top three, top five pick really shouldn't surprise you at all. Like, he is absolutely worthy of that based on his years in college. I still tend to think that if they stick at three, it's going to be Quinn and Williams. And it just seems like it's coming from too many places. It's too much smoke for me to believe that that is the case. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. It's really crazy. And I'm not going to get into my thoughts on Ed Oliver over Quinn and Williams or Ed Oliver over Bosa or whatever. I've said this before. I think that... If Bosa or Williams is on the board at number three, they should absolutely be the pick, and that should be the end of it. I'll get into more about this if the Jets actually pick Ed Oliver, because I don't really want to go off on some sort of rant, and then it ends up being like we're talking about poker season, lying season, and we're wasting a bunch of energy for no reason. I just think the interesting aspect of this is clearly the Jets do like Oliver to some degree. To what degree, we don't know for sure. And where and why are these leaks coming? That is the big question that we have to answer. You got a theory on this, too. Yeah, part of this might have to do with what's happening with Kyler Murray right now. There are some rumors that maybe Arizona is not going to pick him number one overall. They're saying that perhaps the owner is going to intervene and say, hey, we gave up X, Y, and Z to move up to the 10th pick last year to get Josh Rosen. Why are we giving up on this kid so fast? And so he may put the kibosh on it. It's possible that happens. In that scenario, Murray could fall to where the Jets are at number three. There are rumors that the Giants could jump up from number six to number three. Ralph Vacchiano at SNY reporting that today. So let's talk about this real quickly, Chris. For starters, what are your thoughts on the idea that Murray may not go first overall? Do you think there's some credence to that? And second, do you think that if he is on the board at three, that the Giants would try to make some sort of major move to jump up there and grab him. I'm so conflicted about this Kyler Murray thing, and I've been conflicted about this the entire time, throughout this entire process. Um, again, we're talking about the, the smoke and all the smoke, and just from the very beginning, right at the combine, it was like everybody's convinced that uh, Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray are going to be the pick. And it was... I can't, couldn't sit there and knock it and say this is ridiculous, no way this is going to happen, because the pairing of Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray makes all the sense in the world. But it still seems crazy to me that you would take Josh Rosen last year. I still believe in Rosen. I have to think that they still believe in Rosen to some degree, at least, especially after that, that train of a team that they threw, out there, threw him out there with last year. I don't see how you can draw any conclusions of him from that um but you so you're looking at all that and all the smoke and the way that they handled it uh everything about it seems very smokish to me but again i'm looking at kyler murray and cliff kingsbury and it seems like a perfect pairing it it really does uh but i could definitely see the owner now being like all right well look if you can trade Rosen and get me 6 and 17 from the Giants then okay then go ahead and take Kyler Murray but I I don't they're not going to get anything like that if they're at best getting a second back maybe the owner's like no you're not taking another quarterback at this point just to get another second now the idea about the Giants that's that Kyler Murray doesn't seem to be a fit for me with the Giants. With Gettleman, I can't really see Gettleman uh, trade. A, it's gonna. I'm have a hard time seeing Gettleman trade up when I think he could probably sit at six and get Dwayne Haskins, or he could probably take somebody a, a defensive player at six, and then maybe if they like Daniel Jones, get him at seventeen. I don't see Kyler Murray being a Gettleman type of fit there. I don't. I really don't see them trying to trade up there. Obviously, I talked about this last time. What Jets fans need to root for is for Arizona to pass on him and Kyler Murray to be on board at three. That's your best chance of getting a trade, a big value in a trade back. I do have a hard time seeing that the Giants being that team, but I don't know. It's anything's possible, and this, the whole situation is crazy and weird. Uh, I could see it going either way. I, I, if I had to bet, I would probably bet that Kyler Murray is going number one, but I won't be surprised at all if the if Cardinals don't go there. And again, th this is all just my gut feeling and 
the thoughts bouncing around in my head because I have no sources or no inside knowledge of what Arizona is really thinking. But just trying to, you know, peek through the woods and see what's going on here, it just it never felt right to me. It all felt a little funny from the beginning. So we'll have to wait and see, obviously. But I, I've, I'm not as sold as everybody else that it's definitely going to be Kyler at one. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Push comes to shove. I think that it's going to be Murray, but it could get really interesting if it isn't. It's going to be interesting either way because one way or another, there's going to be some mystery there when the Jets come up on the clock at number three. Whether or not they're even going to make that pick, they could trade down. We're going to find out sooner rather than later. The draft is only a couple of days away. Can't get here soon enough, I'm sure. You agree, Chris, and that's why you've got a lot of content up there right now, and you're going to have plenty more once the draft actually happens. We're going to have tons of podcasts, tons of audio for you to listen to, dissecting the draft, and we've got more coming up leading up to it. Like I said in just a bit, we're going to get back into our discussion with Jim Colburn, the data and analytics expert, to talk about the rest of the prospects in the 2019 draft. Chris, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. We shall talk again in short order. In the meantime, go ahead and let everybody know where they can get a hold of you and where they can read your very big deal work. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, uh, at CNimbly and at Jets Insider. And of course, JetsInsider.com. And uh, there will be plenty of draft-related stuff coming out in these next couple of days. And, uh, you know, whoever they end up picking, we're going to have a whole lot of stuff for you guys about it. And you're going to either be extremely mad or extremely happy. You'll talk yourselves into being extremely happy one way or another, and I'll help you get there. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Thanks, Chris. Now let's get back to part two of our discussion with Jim Colburn, the data and analytics expert, who yesterday took us through all the pass rushers in the 2019 draft class from a data and analytics perspective, and also talked to us a little bit about Quinn and Williams. So let's get into some of the other positions. As we move along from edge rusher, let's move to another position that Jets fans are very, very interested in, and that, of course, is cornerback on the defensive side of the ball. Jim, again, if you could do me the honor of going through the guys that you think would be top options, give some comps, talk a little bit about the data, and then as you did with the edge rushers, get into some of the guys that could be steals or good draft picks in day two and day three. This cornerback class is really bugging me. <laughs> because uh, just because there there are some really great athletes at the position. Um well, not really I wouldn't say they're great athletes, but there there's a lot of good athletes at the position. The problem with the cornerback position in general is that if you're not a elite all-around athlete at the position and you're not very productive at the position, then there are there's just going to be problems. A lot of times you have to sync up with things. The top cornerback for me, at least is Justin late at Michigan state and the overall comp for him. And this is just based on the data, the statistics is Richard Sherman. Um, he pretty much has almost not completely identical traits to him, but he's tall. He's 6'2", 192 pounds. Uh, he ran a four five forty, which again is going to be my big pet peeve. So I'm going to, you know, before I finish, I'm going to give this little asterisk that he does have a below average speed score, but similar to Richard Sherman, he has above average explosion and above average flexibility for his size. You know, someone that had a 4.09 short shuttle and 6.93 pounds has the length, you know, has 33 inch arms uh, in terms of his arm length. And when you look at all that data collectively, even though the speed score isn't that great, he's someone that if he goes to the right team in the right scheme, and of course he was incredibly productive. I mean, he, he was 99% in terms of solo tackle data, 90% in terms of pass deflection data, which just is sort of like the find the ball in the air type metric as, as I kind of refer to it as. So he just seems to be the top guy just because of those particular traits. He's not going to be a day one pick because most NFL teams don't like to draft cornerbacks that slow in the first round. But I do think that if he gets onto the right team, he can easily be the best cornerback in this class and have sort of a Richard Sherman-like impact. He's also really young, too. Uh, so most of the things he – but this is the biggest thing about data in general to me is prospects where if they hit every single number but there's one number that's off, a lot of times you can make exceptions for that guy. Those are usually where the outliers come in is, is the fact that these are players who were great in every single metric except for one – area and 
it didn't hold them down, if that makes any sense. So, like, a big example of this is, you know, you look at, you know, the Seahawks, uh, you know, drafting, uh, you know, their quarterback in particular, uh, who was, you know, 5'11", you know, and everybody was like, well, his production was great. He's a great leader off the field. Uh, you know, he's all these great things, but he's 5'11", so we can't draft him high. Uh, and that's another example of Justin Lane. Um, I would also say Julian Love is another cornerback who is, is pretty much very similar to Justin Lane in terms of his athleticism data, but he's just a great, uh, you know, he has good explosion numbers, good flexibility numbers. He profiles as sort of a zone cornerback. Uh, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, who some people see as a safety, I look at him as sort of a, like a slot cornerback, if you will, a guy that you mainly put in this, like a Chris Harris type is kind of what I see. Yeah, Chauncey Gardner Johnson being, you know, being a lead at. And uh, he has great athleticism traits, good production traits, all those other sort of things. Greedy Williams, unfortunately, doesn't have enough data to really say much. He didn't really do the agility drills either, which is a bit concerning at the quarterback position. So it's really hard to say. He had good production, but his overall data is just a little wonky, if you will. Uh, and I guess the last guy I mentioned is, you know, Amani Aru Warriyi from Penn State. That's kind of a mouthful. Uh, he is someone who has good production, uh, good athleticism traits, but uh, he, he doesn't have, like, elite athleticism uh, or elite production, but he's just someone that just has good all-around traits and probably will be a day two guy, uh, if you will. And of course, Byron Murphy, because I know a lot of guys are going to be like, what about Byron Murphy? <laughs> He's another guy that I do like his film. I like his production, but has most of the, his athleticism data, particularly the agility drills, I haven't really got a hold of yet to really project him. But he did have a below average speed score, which is the only sort of main concern with, with uh, Byron Murphy. Let's move over to the offensive side of the ball. We'll come back to defense, but I want to do this in order of positions that Jets fans would be curious about. So let's talk offensive line. The two guys that are getting the biggest talk are Jawan Taylor and Jonah Williams as far as the top of the draft. There's also Garrett Bradbury, the center, who Jets fans have really zeroed in on because the Jets really need a center. Tell me about those three Give me some comps for them. What does the data tell you? And then if you could go through all the rest of the offensive linemen that are worth mentioning in day one, two, and three of the draft. Sure. Um, well, I would say in, in terms of Jonah Williams, uh, based on his athleticism data, I've not found a starting tackle with his athleticism traits um, because he, he has a above average speed score, but he has a below average explosion score and a, a below average flexibility score which is not a good place to be, if that makes any sense. It's kind of Michael Orr territory to a certain extent, a little bit, um, with a guy like Jonah Williams. So that's the only thing I would say is he has a good speed score, but his explosion data and his flexibility data is not that fantastic. I would say he's probably one of the more overhyped tackles in the class. Uh, when it comes to Jawan Taylor, uh, he has great size. I haven't really got any athleticism testing on him yet, so I can't really speak much on him. But he does have good size for the position um, you know, in terms of you know being um, you know, 6'5", 312 pounds, and really great length, which I think is a big thing a lot of people are paying attention to with him is you know, his 35-inch arms, which people go goo-goo-gaga over, obviously, at the position. Um, Garrett Bradbury, though, is was fantastic in terms of his testing. Uh, he was someone who uh, had, you know, 80 percentile explosion, 90 percentile plus speed and flexibility for his size. Uh, he's someone that is now he's not the most athletic center in the class. Chris Leinstrom from Boston College has the uh, sort of uh, prize for that. But Bradbury definitely is, is uh, has elite center athleticism. And uh, that's definitely why I think that most of the hype around him comes down to is just having that elite center athleticism. Let's talk a little bit about other positions on the offensive side of the ball, including wide receiver, where the Jets seem to be stocked reasonably well. However, they could potentially use a solid young hand there, whether it's in the first round if they trade down, or more likely in the third round and beyond. Who are some of the top receivers as far as the data goes? What are some comps? And who are some other guys that you have that the Jets might have their eye on in days two or three? That is really hard to say. <laughs> I mean, that's a receiver class. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's, uh, 
it's all over the place, man. I mean, I know everybody's going to say DK Metcalf, DK Metcalf, and, and don't get me wrong. His explosion testing was incredible. His speed testing was incredible. When it came down to his flexibility, he looks like Cordell or Patterson. His production data, and, you know, Metcalf is someone who, adjusting for the games he missed, by the way. This is basically adjusting for all the games that he missed and just looking at the games that he actually played in. Um, he was only in the 50 percentile area in terms of his production data. Uh, and the vast majority of all pro players, all pro, uh, pro bowl uh, starters even are above where Metcalf was in terms of his production data, which is concerning. Um, and add on top of that, his flexibility testing, which again is significantly, and I know he went to the pro day and improved his numbers. Let me tell you this much about how uh, athleticism data in general. If a guy does it at the combine, like let's say he runs like a five flat at the combine and then he goes to his pro day and he runs like a four, seven, three or something. I'm really not going to adjust what came from the combine because pro day numbers are just notoriously less efficient to use. They're, they're just less reliable uh, compared to the combine. They just are. Um, and you could say a lot of things about the combine and, and believe me, there's, I don't need to do it. People have already written articles about it, but the combine is just more reliable. So even though Metcalf went to his pro day and improved on his short shuttle and improved on his three count, I just, I, I just can't change the number they did at the combine because, again, like he, he seemed pretty prepared. He, he looked pretty prepared for that test. You know what I'm saying? Like he didn't look like he just showed up to the combine and he was just like, you know, drunk and, and, uh, you know, was eating pizza the whole week prior. You know, like he looked pretty prepared for that combine, uh, and didn't do well in those, in those tests. So, uh, and again, with with a short shot and three count, it just deals with just your ability to turn and move as a as a wide receiver. And I and I do know there's going to be a lot of people that will say, "Oh, he's Demarius Thomas, or he's this guy, or he's Calvin Johnson." And Calvin Johnson didn't do his his agility testing, but both Demarius Thomas and Calvin Johnson were elite productive in college in terms of market share data. Metcalf wasn't. So what are we doing here in terms of a guy like that? But I, I'll, I'll get off the Metcalf, but. Like I'm not saying Metcalf is going to be a bad NFL wide receiver, but what I am saying is is that there is a lot of risk with a guy like this. He's not Julio Jones. He's not Calvin Johnson. He's not Demarius Thomas. He could be a serviceable starting wide receiver, but I think for people that put that type of hype on him, it's just not really going to work out long run. Now, guys that I do like but haven't really done everything yet to really say much – Nikhil Harry has good production, proved at the combine that he at least has decent speed for a guy his size. Uh, Hakeem Butler is probably my favorite wide receiver on tape. You know, just crazy, ridiculous catches. Just reminds me an awful lot of Allen Robinson. Like, that. that's sort of my general comparison for Hakeem Butler. Is just, he reminds me a lot of Allen Robinson in terms of just his, his ability to catch the football, make plays up the catch. Great just all around uh, catchability um, of the football. Um, some other sort of guys that are sort of complimentary guys, Debo Samuel at South Carolina is a guy I'm a big fan of, uh, who is just a, a good all-around route runner, really athletic. Andy Isabella has sort of a T.Y. Hilton-esque kind of appeal to him. So, I mean, I don't think he's going to be as good as T.Y. Hilton, but definitely a similar sort of uh, skill set. And uh, in terms of the other sort of wide receiver, A.J. Brown, I think, is the best wide receiver at Ole Miss. So I may get flagged for that, may not. <laughs> but I just feel like he's just a better route runner. He has a better just all-around skill set. Uh, I just think he's going to work out better. <laughs> you know, I just think he's going to be better um, at the NFL level. And then if you actually are going to take a player to be like an athletic outlier, I mean, you don't take D.K. Metcalf. You take Miles Boykin. Boykin just – Overall, tested better all around compared to Metcalf. You know, uh, the best, the most athletic wide receiver in this class based on data is Miles Boykin. So, if you want to take like a athletic sort of project, then that's who I would go with. Um, but overall, I do like this wide receiver class. I just, I just keep thinking to myself, this could be a very similar class to 2015, where. You might have an Amari Cooper here and, and maybe 
a, a guy, like maybe like another wide receiver over here that kind of breaks out, but a lot of the guys may not see the field if much at all. You know, there's going to be a lot of Kevin Whites here. There's going to be a lot of DGBs. You know, there's going to be a lot of guys that, that probably might not have the best careers compared to what we thought they were going to do. With that being said, we know that wide receivers are not the only position on the field that can make an impact in the passing game. There's tight ends, and even running backs now are making an impact in the passing game. You look at Le'Veon Bell coming to the Jets, and he certainly has the skill set to make a huge impact for Sam Darnold and Adam Gase in the passing game. So let's talk about the tight ends and the running backs. We know who the top two tight ends are, the two guys from Iowa, Fant and Hawkinson. So if you could run through them first, we'll go through the tight ends, and then we'll get to the running backs. Sure. Uh, well, Noah Fant... If you're just going off of data, would be the top tight end in this class. If you go by film, it would be Hokinson. And Hokinson has a good case to make that he should be the top tight end just because he has Chris Cooley-like athleticism traits, uh, but more athletic than Chris Cooley, and uh, and better production than Noah Fan. But... Noah Fant just has that elite 97. I mean, basically, he was 97 in explosion, 96 in speed, and 77 in terms of flexibility for his size. Also had all pro uh, production traits uh, and is really young as well. You know, he, he's basically going to be 21 and a half when the draft rolls around. Um, so he's, he's great, you know, uh, and as far as comparison for him, I mean, it's pretty much anybody, really. It could be Tony Gonzalez, for crying out loud. You know, like, there's just so many, like, his athleticism is so high that it's there really isn't a comparison for him, um, other than, like, really athletic guys in the past. But Hokinson definitely is, is, like, a Chris Cooley type. Other tight ends that I think have a shot, they probably will never be elite, but definitely guys that I think have a good shot to be really productive guys is, is Josh Oliver from San Jose State is someone that has good production, decent all-around athleticism traits, and, and has a good chance of being a good player. Uh, Jay Sternberger from Texas A&M is another guy who has you know, good all-around traits and has a good chance of being a, a, you know, a pretty productive overall player uh, in terms of his overall you know, data. Uh, uh, Cajal Waring from San Diego State has that sort of potential as well. Irv Smith Jr. has the potential to be sort of a uh, a y type guy. Like if he ends up on like the Patriots or something like that, I think he has a chance to be really good in that sort of situation, or sort of like a short intermediate. Because the the issue with these sort of uh, pocket tight, I call them pocket tight ends. You know, guys that are like six foot two or six foot one, and they're tight end. Is how do you put them in line? Like how are you going to put a six foot two, two hundred forty pound guy up against a two hundred seventy pound, six foot five edge rusher? It's not the best matchup, if you will. Like it's it's a mismatch. So you know that's the only thing that limits Ursma Junior. Is I know there's a lot of Ursma Junior fans out there, but because of his size, it makes you question his ability to be on the field consistently. Like you have to make it a point to put him on the field and make him productive. So. He's the only guy there's those, the, there's uh, sort of those issues, but this is a good tight end class. I don't quite think it's as as great as some of the past, uh, if you will, but I do think it there is a chance of guys like uh, Fant and Hokinson just being really really great contributors on the on the football team. You know, both those guys have a chance to be elite tight ends. Um, Fant has the better chance because of his overall athleticism traits. But I wouldn't be surprised if Hokinson becomes like a Pro Bowl tight end, you know, because he he's just is a great blocker on film. Uh, he has a full package. While Fant doesn't have the full package, but maybe he gets it down the line because he could still develop. I mean, you know, like he's 21, right? I mean, he has plenty of time to to get better. And both guys share comparisons with Pro Bowl level tight ends. Yeah, I mean Fant. I just, I mean, again, uh, Tony Gonzalez is probably the best comparison for a guy like that you know uh and, and gonzalez was a terrible blocker you know when he first in the nfl so uh, but that's just how great of an athlete fans is you know he's he's someone that uh has great athleticism had good production and of course you know gonzalez was someone coming out of cal uh but 
and Fant Iowa, but though that would be my main comparison for Fant would be like a Gonzalez like guy who probably needs a little bit of time to develop. But Hokinson is just kind of the out of the box. You need me to be in line. All right, coach, I can do that. You need me to catch the football and make big plays. I can do that. Like he basically is like ready to go out of the box. If you need instant impact tight end, that's Hokinson. Let's talk about the running backs because this isn't like previous years where you had somebody like Saquon Barkley who was going to go at the top of the draft, Ezekiel Elliott who was going to go at the top of the draft, Leonard Fournette, or even somebody like Melvin Gordon. This seems to be a bit of a down year for running backs, but there are running backs that people like in the second, third, fourth, fifth round even. Talk to me a little bit about some of the guys that your data has really shined a light on either positively or negatively and some of the comparisons that you found. Yeah, I don't want to say that this running back class, I was going to say this running back class sucks, um, <laughs> but it just really does because like there's film wise, there's not really that guy that's really there. Uh, like at least focusing on the positive. So like, let's focus on the guys who have at least a shot to be contributors or good players. Bryce Love from Stanford has had like, I'm not going to say he made a terrible – it was a bad decision. You know, he goes from having one of the best seasons at, at Stanford in his career, basically uh, Chris McCaffrey-esque type season for Bryce Love, and then decides to stay in school. And from that point on, it just has been downhill ever since. Injuries, uh, you know, not being healthy during the actual process, which scouts hate. I mean, if you're going to be injured during the season, that's fine, but at least prove you can be – you know, healthy during the actual draft process and hasn't really been able to do that um, on top of his size concerns. Bryce Love to me looks a lot like a Deion Lewis type where he may enter the NFL, he'll do some really great things in preseason and then maybe just fall off the map, you know, where we don't really hear about him anymore for a couple of years and then a team picks him up again like the Patriots or some other different types of teams and then he actually becomes like a really good contributor. So I still believe in Bryce Love, but I'm not going to bet a lot of coins into that, if that makes any sense. Like, he's he's someone that, honestly, because of his injuries, because of just not being healthy during the process, he's someone that's just going to be lower on the board because of all those sort of factors with him, even though his film in that one season he had was fantastic um, and has elite speed just based on his overall film. Um, the guy that I think has a chance to be a starter – well, it's, I should say the best data running back. So the, the running back in this class, he pretty much hit every sort of metric you're looking for, was Alex Barnes from Kansas State. And based on film, he just looks okay. He looks like a solid starting running back. Now, is that something you draft in day, in day one? Probably not. Day two, yeah. But he just has, like, he's great in everything, uh, except for age. He's a little not as old. His speed is not that great. Like he's just not a perfect prospect, but he at least has the best sort of chance to be a, a starting, uh, like a Jordan Howard type. I would say Alex Barnes is like the best chance to be like a Jordan Howard, like may go day three, day, day two ish and end up becoming like a starter for that team. Um, if you will down the road and then he'll have to battle some other running back at some point and then probably lose the job. Possibly. But that's sort of Alex Barnes in a nutshell. The rest of the running backs in the class, guys like David Montgomery, uh, guys like uh, Miles Sanders, uh, uh, Travis Homer, these are backs that have a shot to become starters. They have the production and all of those sort of traits to become starters. Or, or Like Devin Azigbo is probably another guy too. I know there's a lot of Devin Azigbo fans out there. Those are guys that have a good chance of becoming like starters but they'll never really be elite starters. Or at the very least, they might have one season where they're really great. They might be like a Devontae Freeman type situation where they'll have like a couple really good seasons for like two years and then just kind of fall off the map a bit um, with those types of guys. But all, all overall, there just is no great running back prospects in this class. Um, all of them have warts. Their film is good, but not great. Uh, there's no elite running back athletes in the class. Alex Barnes is a great athlete, but he's not an elite athlete. So it's it's just not a very good running back class. 
unfortunately. But, you know, if you need running backs, I mean, that's kind of why I felt like the Jets went out and got uh, Le'Veon Bell because even though Bell has taken a year off of football, uh, he at least is going to be better than all the running backs in this class. You know, at whatever age he's at, he's just going to be better than them. You know, when he hits 30, he'll be better than a lot of the running backs in this class. Jim, let's go back to the defensive side of the ball. We will come back to offense for one last position. But first, let's talk about the interior defensive linemen. You talked about Quinn and Williams. You mentioned Ed Oliver there. You seem to be pretty high on him based on the data. So let's talk about Oliver and some of the other guys that could be possibilities there for the Jets or any other team on the interior defensive line. Okay. Yeah, Oliver is fantastic. <laughs> to say. Uh, he is really productive, 90 plus percentile and everything. And then athleticism-wise, I mean, the guy ran, I mean, again, it was a pro day, but even if, like, he ran 4.73 this pro day, even if you say, well, it's a pro day, let's say he ran 4.81, it's still a 90-plus percentile speed score. But even if you take point, if you add .1 to his, to his 40, it's still elite speed for his size. So he's just someone that just is, is ridiculous. I mean, he's someone that's definitely in that Geno Atkins, Aaron Donald-ish sort of area with him. Um, I know he's gotten some criticism about having sort of an injury last year. I mean, my data really focuses on the best single season. If I looked at just injury-riddled seasons, then I would have missed on Miles Garrett. I would have missed on Joey Bosa. Like, injuries are going to happen. You know, teams are going to throw they're going to do things to affect your production they're going to have you like three different people try to take care of you after one season of being really great but oliver definitely had that situation happen to him and he still was pretty productive despite it but yeah he's great uh kalen saunders i think is the underrated guy i mean he he basically profiles as like don tory poe athleticism wise and i i feel like with saunders he's someone you might get day two day three and you're going to have a really, really great uh, interior defensive lineman. I mean, he's a freaky, freaky guy. So um, he just is. Uh, you put on the film of him uh, going up against you know small school guys. It is small school, but you just you just notice he just works at a different speed for a guy his size. I mean, he's 324 pounds and ran a five flat 40. You know that's ridiculous. So he's and and was productive. So he, he's just one of those guys that I think is just great. Uh, overall uh cortez broughton from cincinnati is another guy who's sort of like a day two day three guy who is really fantastic and based on his production athleticism traits dexter lawrence uh profiles very good as as a nose tackle prospect is in the same similar mold to like a poe or a uh or a holote nata to a certain extent i mean i haven't got all the athleticism on Lawrence yet, but he's definitely trending that way based on his overall size and athleticism traits. Michael Dogby from Temple is also pre- a pretty good all-around uh, interior defensive lineman. Uh, Jerry Tillery is is pretty decent. Uh, Christian Wilkins is kind of is really solid. Uh, so, like, there are a lot of really good interior uh, defensive linemen this year. You know, like I, I think defensively, if you come out of this draft mostly defense there's a good chance you're going to do really, really well, you know, in terms of just your overall future projection, I guess. So this is, this is very much like 2012 or not 2012, 2011, for example, that 2011 class where everybody was, everybody who drafted like quarterbacks or, or uh, running backs and stuff like that, they, they didn't do so well, but the guys who were drafting edge rushers and drafting interior defensive linemen and those type of positions, they, they were hitting the jackpot. So this is definitely that type of draft when it comes to defense. What about inside linebackers? This is not a position where the Jets really have a need, but you never know. Sometimes it's just one of those situations where a team could find themselves with a guy on the board that they really like in a position they don't really need, and they feel like they just have to take him because he's so much better than anybody else. So should that situation arise, what are your thoughts on this inside linebacker class and who are some guys you have your eye on? I mean, this is a great inside linebacker class I, i've heard a lot of people saying oh this inside linebacker class is just bad and i just don't like it and uh like this guy's jared davis and this guy's this and that. like this is a great linebacker class i mean Devin white is ridiculously athletic 
really productive. I mean, he, he profiles very similar to like Bobby Wagner, but of course, you know, he played at LSU, you know, Devin Bush, fantastic athleticism, fantastic production. Uh, ben Burke Hervin from Washington's kind of a, like a really sleeper ish kind of guy uh, who has very good athleticism traits, very good production traits. Uh, and, you know, she's good all around type guy. Blake Cashman is probably the guy that people are a, bit, a little bit late on. I would say because people didn't watch him play. That's the biggest thing to me. Uh, so all the film guys out there that, that criticize me about not watching the film, I do watch the film, but all the film guys say, oh, you didn't watch the film. Well, you didn't watch his film either. You know, like <laughs> you're just watching the same team, Georgia or Alabama or whatever, watching the same prospects at the same team for 13 weeks. And then combine rolls around, guy does really well. And then and now you watch his film and now you go, oh, he's amazing. Why can't you just watch this film to begin with? You know, like you, you had a lot of time on your hands. But, uh, yeah, Cashman is, is again, great film, great, uh, great athleticism traits, great production traits. Cameron Smith has a good chance of being a, a starting linebacker, uh, based on his athleticism and his, uh, his production traits as well. Jermaine Pratt is a guy that at the senior bowl, I was checking him out and he, he, he just looked great from a physical standpoint, has good production, good athleticism traits. There's just a lot of, really good linebackers in this class. So like if you need a linebacker, inside linebacker in this class, you have lots of options. You know, I will say that much. Um because they all have good production, they all have good athleticism traits. And those are basically the main things you want at that position. So I think there's gonna be a lot of starting linebackers out of this class and, and some of them, at least with Bush and White, those are the two that have the best chance to be elite to near elite in terms of uh future projection. What about safety? Because that's a position where the Jets are set with Jamal Adams and seemingly set with Marcus May, but the problem is Marcus May keeps getting hurt. So it's possible that they could be looking for a safety somewhere in this draft. What do you think about the players at safety in the 2019 draft, and what does your data tell you? Well, I would say it's a fairly – it's a good safety class. It's not a great safety class. Um, I would say that the best safeties, one Thornhill is probably head and shoulders over everyone. Uh, had crushed it in every sort of production metric you're looking for. Uh, very good in terms of explosion and speed. And film-wise, is pretty decent as well. I mean, he's a ball hawk, man. So if you are if you are trying to get like a strong safety slash free safety type, because he can play both positions, Thornhill to me is, is the best safety to top safety in the class. After him, uh, Zedrick Woods is a fairly good all-around uh, safety as well based on his production, based on his athleticism trait. Saquon Hampton from Rutgers is maybe a day three safety, but has a good chance of becoming a starter uh, on his overall uh, production and those other sort of factors for him. Uh, Taylor Rapp has gotten a lot of hype and has, a, you know, he could be a decent sort of free safety type, but I do kind of wonder about being an elite, elite free safety type. So he may end up becoming like a starter, but I do question like his, uh, how, great he can become, I guess, is the only sort of question mark with him. But um, And Deontay Thompson, I think, the only issue with Deontay Thompson is he has really done nothing in this draft process to really help him out. You know, he had the, the kind of questionable game against Clemson, doesn't do anything at the Combine, doesn't do anything at his pro day, so he just hasn't really done anything to help himself out, to be noticed. Um, so I'm still waiting on a lot of info on him, but I know a lot of people have him as a top safety uh, with on uh, most boards, but he has done absolutely nothing to help his stock in the draft process, and I just I don't see that going well for him when the draft actually rolls around. Let's get to the last position, and that is quarterback, which is normally the most important position, but for the Jets, it isn't because they drafted Sam Darnold last year. However, here's where it does come into play. There are quarterbacks that could go toward the top of the draft, which if those guys were to get picked at number one or number two, could shove some players down to the Jets. So it's worth noting who could be a possibility there and what those guys project to. So what these teams might be getting themselves into if they draft these guys. And also, the Jets could be in the market for a long-term backup quarterback if they see one that they like in the mid to late rounds. It's possible they're not sold on Davis Webb. So I want to know what you think about the top guys at quarterback that are getting the most buzz. Notably, Kyler Murray, 
Dwayne Haskins and Daniel Jones based on your data? And then are there any other quarterbacks that the data jumps out and says, this guy could be better than some people think, or this guy could be worse than some people think? Well, just like I said with the running backs, this quarterback class is bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, I will I will say it's bad from a, from a data perspective uh, because – there are quarterbacks who had really good seasons. Kyler Murray is someone who had a 90-plus percentile college season based on his statistics. And Dwayne Haskins had a 90-plus percentile production season uh, compared to his peers as well. But it was only one season. <laughs> and they both have uh, question marks, and particularly Kyler Murray. Now, Kyler Murray has sort of a, an excuse because he was behind Baker Mayfield you know, so like you, you can make that excuse. I will give you that. That Colin Murray, well, he was behind Baker Mayfield. What do you want from him, man? You know, but at the same time, went to Texas A and M, had to transfer. Like he just has sort of a bumpy profile. And the whole baseball football thing. Uh, my big perspective on that is is Colin Murray, is someone that I think going into that last year, going into 2018, was not expecting to have the season that he had. He was expecting to have kind of an okay season, go into baseball, and that was it. The fact that he ended up becoming like having one of the best statistical seasons out of every quarterback in 2018 made him reevaluate like what he wants to do. Because I think before the season even started, he was thinking like, oh, I'll just have some fun, play some football, and go into baseball. The fact that he actually started to be really good at it and start to go, hey, maybe I can, maybe I can play football. That's what really is that sort of catalyst for him. So, but at the same time, he's only a one-year starter. And as I've emphasized a lot, based on the historical data, one-year starters don't really do that well. I mean, most of the time they become busts. Some of the most notable ones in recent memory, like Cam Newton, is probably the best example of a one-year starter. Uh, he did he did start at sort of a lower-level division before he went to um, – yeah, he was at Florida for a bit, transferred, and then came back to Auburn. But um, he's he's like the only sort of best example of like this is what you get if you have a and he's a great athlete. You know, he's probably the most athletic quarterback. I don't I don't say ever, but definitely based on data, recorded data ever. Um, and Murray's definitely athletic as well, but he hasn't really done anything to prove his athleticism, which is kind of odd. But still, uh, and when it comes to Haskins. Similar issue, only one-year starter. So those are the two top quarterbacks, and they only have one year worth of starts. And that's concerning because the quarterback position, a lot of times, is about experience. It's about making mistakes at the college level and learning from them. That way, when you make those mistakes at the NFL level, you're not having to take so many you know, licks, if you will. Like You need to have at least some experience. Um, it kind of reminds me of what Blake Bortles. You know, Blake Bortles, when he was at – Central Florida, there was a game in particular where they ran a 3-4 defense against him, and he had no idea what to do. Like, you could noticeably see that he just – he because he's never experienced it before. That's what college is for quarterbacks is so that they get exposed to different concepts and different schemes and different other stuff like that and learn from it. But if you're going to the NFL and having to learn from your mistakes in the NFL and you don't have a good foundation of knowledge – it gets really hard to, to rise. It really does because you're going to be going up against guys who have been in the NFL for 10 plus years. And now you're trying to outsmart them. And, and, you know, you have to have that experience. You have to have that sort of, uh, that, that ability there. And, and because those two guys are like that, it's just scary. As far as Daniel Jones goes, I don't really see him as a first round prospect at all. Based on his data, he's, he was basically 50 percentile in terms of his, uh, best single season. 50 percentile in terms of his career data. And then when you look at his high school data, it's even worse. And I know high school data is controversial, but I'm just talking about facts here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, I think it's very reasonable to assume that if a guy is above average in high school, he's more likely to be above average in college. And if he's above average in college, he's probably more likely to be above average in the NFL. That is the assumption that I'm saying. And I think that's pretty reasonable. If a guy has all D's and C's in high school, he's probably not going to become a doctor. And if he does become a doctor, he's probably not going to be the best doctor in his position ever. That's pretty reasonable to say, don't you think? So I just, uh, 
I just feel like that's the issue with Daniel Jones. And Drew Locke especially. Drew Locke and Daniel Jones pretty much have the same metric profile, except Drew Locke is, you know, has better arm strength. So, I mean, you're basically getting like Jay Cutler 2.0 kind of a little bit, except Cutler was better at Vanderbilt. So this uh, this quarterback class is not great. And the, and the quarterbacks who have like a good production profile, like Brian Finley has solid, solid data. Will Gurr has solid data. All those guys are going to be 24 years old. And I'll just say this much. When it comes to quarterbacks who are 24 years old when they enter the draft, it's a list of guys like Jeff Garcia, David Garrard, and a bunch of guys who became coaches later on. Like, that's about it, you know, uh, when it comes to them. So those guys are also questionable. But, yeah, this you're, you lucked out, man. The fact that you got Sam Darnold, and I know Darnold didn't have the best season ever, but keep in mind he, he was a 21-year-old quarterback last year. Every 21-year-old quarterback is terrible when they're in the NFL. And, that, and that, <laughs> I'm just telling you facts. I'm just telling you facts, man. Like the 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 best 21 year old quarterback was Fran Tarkington, and his overall score was about 60 in terms of his NFL production score when he was 21. So 21 year olds don't usually do that well. They really don't. So don't be too. This is the year 20. You know, this is the season where you want to see him make improvements, and I think he will. So don't get too down on them just because a 21-year-old quarterback had sort of a rocky season. Like, that's going to happen. It just is when you're that young. And with Fran Tarkenton, you're going back almost 50 years. So it's a bit of yeah. a time warp there between Fran Tarkenton and Sam Darnold. I think most Jets fans are very excited for Sam Darnold, and they're happy that they're not going into this draft class needing a quarterback, A, because they're tired of needing a quarterback, and B, because, as you said, this draft class doesn't appear to be anywhere near as good as last year's draft class does. However, as we know, Jim... Teams are still often desperate for quarterbacks, and so guys get pushed up, and players that shouldn't get drafted in certain spots do because they play the quarterback position. So the last question I wanted to ask you is, based on your data and everything you've put together, let's say the dream scenario for Jets fans happens, or at least one of the two. The two dream scenarios are that either the two quarterbacks at the top Murray and Haskins go one and two and the Jets are left with a choice of anybody else they want or they get some sort of crazy haul and trade back. So here's what I want to know. If you were sitting at number three and that scenario plays out where the two quarterbacks go one and two, based on your data and everything you have at your disposal, what do you think would make the most sense with the number three overall pick? I think the best sense for the number overall pick would be Ed Oliver, at least for the for the Jets in particular. So, you know, if, if there's two quarterbacks that go, and then you're you're sitting there at three, and you're trying to just stay there. Ed Oliver would be that guy. But if you were to trade down, I would not hate it that much because you do have potential in this class in particular to get really good edge rushers at the bottom of the first and even day two. So I mean, if it's it's really what you want to do, I would say Ed Oliver is probably the the biggest sort of like major impact defensive lineman in this class, like. Um, he's like the truly elite, elite potential Hall of Fame type at the at the defensive position. So that's the only reason why I would like stay put and take him. But if you were to do the route where like, all right, let's trade down, get a bunch of picks, uh, and maybe a pick next year too, I wouldn't hate it because you definitely have a chance to to make make up your losses. But I do think that if you were picking a three, Ed Oliver would be at least my pick there. He is the only person out there, to my knowledge, who has a draft analytics guide available for purchase. And if you don't have it, you should absolutely go buy it because he is the best that I know of at putting this data together. And that's why I always get excited when I have him on around this time of year to talk about this stuff. Had him on a bunch of other times, too. He's always in spots like the Senior Bowl. If you follow his work on Twitter, on YouTube, and through his draft guide, you'll become a better and smarter football fan. Mr. Jim Coburn. Jim, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate you breaking down all these prospects from a data perspective with me. For people that aren't familiar with where to follow you on Twitter, that aren't familiar with your draft guide and aren't familiar with your YouTube channel, why don't you go ahead and let them know how they can get better acquainted with your work. Absolutely. Uh, you can find my work on the Common Man Football YouTube channel. Uh, you basically just type in comment football YouTube. You can also just type in NFL analytics and a lot of my videos will pop up too. 
because I'm pretty much the only person really doing analytics videos um, on, uh, you know, on the draft. And you can also find uh, me on Twitter at Geometrics. And you can also check out my Patreon link is on my Twitter as well. The big thing I'm doing this year in particular is that everyone who does a $5 uh, sort of donation on my Patreon from the months of February, March, and April uh, will get a free 2019 NFL Draft Analytics Guide when it actually comes out. So, you know, again, uh, so it's, it's just sort of free money, if you will. Well, not really free, but if you are really interested in the stuff that I do, and you want to know more about it, or you just want to have that that 2019 NFL Draft Guide already sort of in the works, if you will, um, which that guide should be coming out on April 15th. That's when I plan on releasing it. Uh, then you just go to my Patreon page, make a $5 donation, and, uh, and that's all you have to do. The thing about the Draft Guide in particular is that once the draft is over, there's going to be teams that draft players that I don't even know. You know what I'm saying? Like, Every year, there's going to be players who get drafted, and people are like, I don't know who that is. Why did they draft this guy? And I have to do updates. You know, basically, I call them profile updates, where I have to, like, add players to the database and calculate everything all over again um, because of that. But on my Patreon page in particular, if you're a Patreon subscriber, all that information will be at your disposal. So not only do you get the draft guide, but when players get drafted to your team and you're like, Jim, that guy was not in the draft guide. What do I do? Eventually, those profiles end up on the Patreon page. Sounds like something that should be purchased if it hasn't been already. So, again, if you haven't bought Jim's draft guide, go ahead and do that. If you haven't been watching his videos on YouTube, highly recommend that. And follow him on Twitter as well. Jim, thanks so much for coming on, man. As always, a pleasure. I always look forward to our chats, and I hope that you'll come back again soon. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead and follow Jim on Twitter. Check out Common Man Football on YouTube. Purchase his draft guide. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and turnonthejets.com.